The French Revolution and the Rights of Man Controversy Part 1 Edmund Burke As I noted in the introduction to this course, the French Revolution was a cataclysmic historical and cultural event, and of a very different kind from the American Revolution. The American Revolution was about a colony asserting its independence. The French Revolution represented a complete overthrow of the social order. And while for Americans the American Revolution marks in many ways the beginning of the nation's history, the French Revolution was a more dramatic break with the past. We see evidence of this break with the past in, for example, the adoption of the French Revolutionary Calendar that I also mentioned in the introduction. Even though the calendar only lasted a relatively short time, the notion of creating a new calendar with year one beginning 21 September 1792 symbolizes the extent of the historical rupture. Americans might have marked Independence Day as a holiday, but they did not reset the calendar to the year one. For England, the French Revolution was problematic as it represented a republican form of government overthrowing a monarchy. But many of the writers that we will study in this course were at least initially sympathetic to the ideals of the revolution and the notion of the rights of man and of woman, as we will see. But as the, the revolution proceeded, particularly with the events of the September massacres in 1792, public attitudes began to shift, and even some writers, such as Wordsworth, who initially was supportive of the revolutionary ideals, began to rethink their support. Let's turn now to Edmund Burke and his Reflections on the Revolution in France. We've already met Burke in our discussion of the sublime and the beautiful, but he is most famous for his writings on the revolution. A few words about Burke himself. He was an Irish member of Parliament for over 30 years. He was a member of the Whig Party rather than the Tory Party. The Tories are more or less analogous to, the, to today's Conservative Party in Britain, and the Whigs are closer to the Labour Party. So Burke was associated with a party that often stood for reform, and he often advocated liberal and reform causes, such as the abolition of the slave trade and for more autonomy for the American colonies. Yet Burke is difficult to pin down, especially today when we like to put labels on everyone. In his reflections, he adopts a very conservative view, for example, in his views on inheritance and property, as well as his belief in the monarchy. And in fact, today he is regarded as one of the intellectual forefathers of the conservative political movement. Reflections was published in 1790, just after the arrest and imprisonment of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, which he writes about, but before the terror and many of the executions. As we read the excerpts from Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France, pay particular attention to the metaphors and images that Burke uses when he speaks of the Revolution. He saw the French Revolution as extremely threatening, like a disease, and places a very strong emphasis on England's history and traditions in contrast to France's. 
Burke also uses a number of metaphors from the theater. For example, he describes the events taking place across the channel as a strange chaos of levity and ferocity, and refers to viewing this monstrous tragicomic scene as if it's a scene from a play. In the following passage, notice the role of the figure of inheritance. Our, that is the English, government and privileges are passed down to us in the same way as our property and lives in what Burke terms a sure principle of transmission. Notice, too, both here and throughout the selection, key phrases such as order, symmetry, and pattern of nature. Pattern of nature being another way of saying natural. So here's the first excerpt. By a constitutional policy, working after the pattern of nature, we hold, we transmit our government and our privileges in the same manner in which we enjoy and transmit our property and our lives. The institutions of policy, the goods of fortune, the gifts of providence are handed down to us and from us in the same course and order. Our political system is placed in a just correspondence and symmetry with the order of the world. End of quote. What Burke is arguing is this. The English system is natural, and therefore, by extension, the French Revolution is not. It's unnatural. Here's another excerpt. But your present confusion, like a palsy, has attacked the fountain of life itself. Every person in your country, in a situation to be actuated by a principle of honor, is disgraced and degraded, and can entertain no sensation of life except in a mortified and humiliated indignation. But this generation will quickly pass away. The next generation of the nobility will resemble the artificers and clowns and money-jobbers, usurers and Jews, who will be always their fellows, sometimes their masters. Believe me, sir, those who attempt to level never equalize. In all societies consisting of various descriptions of citizens, some description must be uppermost. The levelers, therefore, only change and pervert the natural order of things. End of quote. What Burke is talking about here when he mentions levelers is those who would abolish the class hierarchy, the distinctions between social classes. He is arguing that these levelers pervert the natural order of things. The British system of classes is, for Burke at least, natural, because they are after the pattern of nature. Burke goes on in a rather unique way to distinguish between rights and property. Equal rights are not the same as access to equal things. He says, All men have equal rights, but not to equal things. He that has but five shillings in the partnership has as good a right to it as he that has five hundred pounds has to his larger proportion but he has not a right to an equal dividend in the product of the joint stock. End quote. Burke has no problem asserting that everyone has equal rights, even while he maintains that the distribution of wealth and property are not at all equal. This is a novel argument and one for which William Godwin and others will take him to task. 
His passage describing the arrest and imprisonment of the French king and queen is perhaps the most shocking and sensational part of the reflections, full of blood, barbarism, and slaughter, all of which he contrasts to the nobility of the queen. Here are a few excerpts from that section. History will record that on the morning of the 6th of October, 1789, the King and Queen of France, after a day of confusion, alarm, dismay, and slaughter, lay down, under the pledged security of public faith, to indulge nature in a few hours of respite and troubled, melancholy repose. From this sleep, the Queen was first startled by the voice of the sentinel at her door, who cried out to her to save herself by flight, that this was the last proof of fidelity he could give, that they were upon him, and he was dead. Instantly, he was cut down. A band of cruel ruffians and assassins, reeking with his blood, rushed into the chamber of the queen and pierced with a hundred strokes of bayonets and poniards the bed, from whence this persecuted woman had but just time to fly, almost naked, and through ways unknown to the murderers, had escaped to seek refuge at the feet of a king and husband, not secure of his own life for a moment. This king, to say no more of him, and this queen, and their infant children, who once would have been the pride and hope of a great and generous people, were then forced to abandon the sanctuary of the most splendid palace in the world, which they left swimming in blood, polluted by massacre, and strewed with scattered limbs and mutilated carcasses." And he goes on in that vein, speaking of unprovoked, unresisted, promiscuous slaughter. Burke describes the king and queen being paraded in a procession led by two members of the palace guard who had been beheaded and their heads, quote, stuck upon spears, whilst the royal captives who followed in the train were slowly moved along amidst the horrid yells and shrilling screams and frantic dances and infamous contumelies and all the unutterable abominations of the furies of hell in the abused shape of the vilest of women. Unquote. This reads like something out of a movie script. It's lurid, shocking, and sensational. Burke's declaration a little later that the age of chivalry is over is a famous one to which Mary Wollstonecraft will respond. Burke sees the revolution as a break in the long succession of generations. Notice the forcefulness of his claim that for the revolutionaries in France, a king is but a man, a queen is but a woman, a woman is but an animal, and an animal not of the highest order. This, too, will prompt an interesting response from Wollstonecraft. Burke employs a whole range of rhetorical devices. Besides the disease metaphors mentioned earlier, he uses a nautical analogy, saying that we have no compass to govern us, nor can we know distinctly to what port we steer, and theater metaphors characterizing the revolution as this great drama, and invoking the most celebrated tragic actors of his day, David Garrick and Sarah Siddons. We'll explore some responses to Burke in our next section. <laughs> 